Welcome to the Healthcare Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bennett, and today I'm joined by Josh Cruz, Principal at Staganga Partners, to talk about flexibility in evidence-based design. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. For those who don't know, Josh and I go way back to our first semester at grad school at Georgia Tech, uh, where I first learned about healthcare design, honestly, from Josh and his experience before coming to tech. And uh, I thought he was crazy for being interested in it. And uh, and here I am today hosting a healthcare design podcast. So the irony abounds. So Josh, I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you today. I think one of the most ironic pieces of us talking about a talking about design in general is that when we first met we agreed on everything in life life morals principles lifestyle everything except design and so yeah. i find it full circle now that we're that's what we're talking about today uh, i don't agree with you anyway but um so josh why don't you take a minute to to go over you know who you are as an architect and just sure. give us a little introduction sure so i started my architecture journey at the university of florida so I'm a Gator alumni. Go Gators. I know you enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started there thinking that I was going to be a dual major aerospace mechanical engineer. Um, and I was in my second semester struggling with the design problem, couldn't figure it out, had you know multiple solutions, just in the professor's office day after day with the wrong answer. Yeah. Uh, finally, one day he looked at me and he said, how many answers do you think there are to this problem? And I said, you know, there's infinite number of answers. That's how the world works. And he said, no, there's only one answer. And I was just, I had this confused look on my face and he looked at me and he said, are you sure you're not an architect? <laughs> and I'd never thought of that before. And I thought, well, well, what are these architect people like and who are they? Let me go meet them. You know, so I walked across campus and immediately fell in love and realized that's my calling in life. I was meant to be an architect because there are an infinite number of answers. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think like an engineer, thankfully. I think like an architect. But yeah, University of Florida. I think you might my... be the first person who I know who stumbled upon architecture <laughs> accidentally trying to find something else usually they go in and give up on it because architecture is difficult or but i've never heard that that yeah. uh that career entry yeah. path yeah it's 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 unique for sure and you know almost failing an engineering class is not the way i wanted to find it but uh nevertheless i found it um Graduated from UF and went to work at a great organization, Gresham Smith and Partners, uh, and loved every minute of it there. I was there for almost two years. While I was there, I got to meet Sheila Bosch, who was their director of design at the time, mm-hmm. um, or the director of research at the time, uh, and she introduced me to evidence-based design. So I, I blame her for all of this, right? Um, and we still keep in touch. She's Georgia Tech alumni, which is where I went next. Uh, so it just it all fell in line. Um you, you know, just, just one thing after another, uh, meeting Sheila, talking with her, having conversations about what evidence-based design is and how it's defined and how it works and how it's implemented and went to do my graduate studies at Georgia Tech where I met you, yeah. uh, you know, and argued with you for two years over how design works and should work and should it work. Um, you know, I, I blame Mike for a lot of the success in my career in design <laughs> solutions. Just... You're welcome. I haven't seen that royalty check yet. But... <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's in the mail. It's in the mail. Um, so, you know, I, while I was at Georgia Tech, I, I started working at the Simtegrate Design Lab uh, with Craig Zimmering and Jennifer DuBose mm-hmm. um, and, you know, worked on the research side of design. So uh, design-based research, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting topic all in all in and of itself and worked on a lot of cool projects with them and understanding how research thing gets implemented back into the practice of architecture. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where it started. Once I graduated Georgia Tech, it was, it, that became my specialty, healthcare design. 
um, because I loved it, because I knew about it, uh, worked a lot in flexibility, did a lot of flexibility research mm -hmm. at Tech with a great colleague, Maya Labrador, who you know as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, all of those things kind of came together to shape a career that's based in this evidence-based design implementation, and flexibility is just a, a highlight of that. Sure. So you mentioned uh, the influence of Sheila Bosch in your, in your first role and exposing you to evidence-based design. Yeah. Um, what were some of those, like, I guess, in initial reactions to and, and the things that you latched onto that kept you going after it? Oh, man. So, uh, you know me. I love a good debate. I love uh, arguing. Uh, my wife would agree. That, that's uh, And so would my daughter, right? That, that, that I love to argue. I love to debate. I, yeah. And I... I I find energy in that. I, mm -hmm. I love doing that. Um, and the first time I heard Sheila give a seminar at Gresham Smith, I I disagreed with some of the things she was saying, and I couldn't understand some of the others. So I went up to afterwards and said, "Oh, we got to talk. I got to take you to lunch. We something's got to give here. Like I I'm not following, and I actually disagree with some of it. So mm -hmm. teach me. Like let's let's talk this out because yeah. she loved it because it's a conversation, and that's how we started. Sure. So. Um, that's really how it started was that boldness to just step up and say, hey, I'm not sure that we're on the same page and clearly you know more than me. Why, why am I not on that page and uh, what can I do to get there and who do you know and how can I talk to them? So we just began a relationship out of that, out of just talking to one another, answering questions, going back and forth with, well, where did you learn that? How did you figure that out? And um, it, was a, it was a mentorship there for almost two years. Yeah. With Sheila. Yeah. Very cool. And then moving on to the Simtegrate Lab, what mm -hmm. types of projects were you involved with? And you know, obviously, I know you did your your thesis project associated with that group. What mm -hmm. what did the what did that research kind of look like? And what did you learn from that? So with Simtegrate, there was there's the research that I conducted uh, aside from my thesis research uh, was a lot about the projects that were going on at the time. Uh, there at their research center uh, inside the laboratory itself. One of those main publications that came out of that was called the Active Design Guidelines. And it's about, you know, different ways that you design communities, uh, a lot of urban design involved as well, mm -hmm. about how you set up the built environment to support a physical lifestyle as opposed to a sedimentary lifestyle. Like yeah. how, do we, how do we active activate the spaces so that they can be engaging and encourage folks to simply walk or simply yeah. take the stairs? Or, you know, it, not everything is so convenient, but at the same time, it's engaging and inspirational enough that you want to engage the environment. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the research projects I, I conducted there. And then some of the other things were we put together a checklist for the Department of Defense on how to design evidence-based projects. Huh. Uh, so as part of that, that was a huge project that went on for many years and I was a very small participant uh, in that but I mean that that was a joint effort Georgia Tech Clemson Department of Defense it was a big a big project at the time and I just was lucky enough to be on the tail end of it and catch a little bit of that one but those are two of the big ones that, that I worked on there that's that's really cool I don't, I don't think I remember I don't I know you're working with the DOD I, I forgot how large that project was and it makes sense a, a government division of that size having yes. guidelines I'm sure it had Mm -hmm. uh, triplicate check involved but <laughs> yes uh, yeah so and then moving in professionally you know I know you you and I are both EDAC certified um, mm -hmm. which is the evidence-based design accreditation um, I'm curious why you did that and what that process looked like if anyone who's listening is considering that you know what what value did you find initially and and what value have you found since sure so I highly encourage it that that is um, it's been a certification that I've used every day. 
it's not it's not one of those credentials you get and it's just at yeah, the, the, your name. the alphabet soup extension right. at the no, end of your business card. It's it's really a way of life. It's really a way of practice um, that that evidence based design accreditation certification becomes who you are and the way you develop your work as your career moves on. So I think I did that before I got my actual architecture license. Um, yeah, actually, me too. Yeah, and and it's well because one, it was low hanging fruit. It's an easier thing to get than an mm-hmm. architectural license. Uh, and because my education at Georgia Tech set me up to be able to take the exam pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, the Most of the, the study guides and all were written by people that I worked with, mm-hmm. right? So it was, I knew them and I knew their work and I knew their writing. And uh, so that, that made it a lot easier for me as well. But I, I really encourage it. I think it's great to keep up with it. Um, it develops a community. So there's a community of EDAC certified professionals and um, that it's a close knit community and we share and, and we collaborate across groups. Mm-hmm. That's great. I want to move a little bit to some of the, like those, you, you, when we were preparing for this conversation, you talked about like an always learning approach and yeah. some of those like initial takeaways that you had, um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned space syntax, which I don't even know what that is off the, like reading it off the page. Um, and in daylighting strategies. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So one of... Talk to me like I'm five. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so a part of the premise to evidence-based design is that there's this continuous learning atmosphere, mm-hmm. that the evidence base is always growing, it's always changing. So simply by adding to the evidence base may move the average needle one way or the other, right? right? So the more evidence you have, the stronger the evidence base is for things. And again, the more evidence you have, the more there is to learn. Yeah. Um, so space syntax is one of those, so the two things that I mentioned were because they were surprising things that I learned that have change the way I view architecture and design. Um, Space syntax is one of those things because it is a, this is my rudimentary definition. This is not at all what it actually is. And there are experts in this field. And that's a whole nother podcast, man. Uh, It is a graphic representation of a quantitative analysis of a plan. Say that again. Uh, A graphic representation of a quantitative analysis of a plan. So we are taught how to do qualitative analysis with descrits. This Mm -hmm. looks good. This feels right. I imagine this is where people will congregate. I designed this so that this is the welcome area. I I put the front door here and you can see it from everywhere. So that is a qualitative analysis. And we are really good at qualitative analysis as architects, as designers. That's that's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's our training, right? We can even give you the philosophy behind why that is designed the way it is. That's how good we are. And generations of people who've informed why Yes, yes. So space syntax actually uh, gives the quantitative analysis to match that qualitative analysis. Actually, that's what you're hoping it does. Sometimes it aligns, sometimes it doesn't. Right. So it's basically a pixelated plan. It takes one foot by one foot squares across a floor plan and then can map. It's a heat map. Yeah color coding those spaces based on variables. So whether that's step depth, connectivity, visibility. So you can quantitatively analyze a floor plan separate from your qualitative analysis at a desk grid. Um, So it it changed my life because I would say, this is the congregation area and we'd throw a heat map on it. And actually the the area that's most, that has the highest connectivity is in a different place. Right. So they didn't align. So it taught me that there are metrics behind what we do and variables behind what we do that are outside of the qualitative realm, sure. which was, you know, outside of what we learned. Yeah. It's surprising. Well, and, and there's been some, 
I think, well, development since we've been in school, mm-hmm. developing tools for that, like uh, spatiometrics is one that does healthcare um, qualitative um, or quantitative metrics. And mm-hmm. then um, um, what's the like environmentalism one? I'm, I'm blanking on the term, but it gives you daylighting situations and, and access to energy and other things like that. So yeah, I think there's a, been some implementations of tools that, that do that right. too. Right. I, yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, it, it just changed the way I looked at things, changed the way I looked at the plan, uh, you know, because it, it provides more data, more information. It's yeah. that evidence base that just needed to inform. Uh, that was the first thing we talked about. The second thing, uh, it's, it's this one This one is more recent than space and tax, right? Okay. So in 2002, there was a biological discovery. In, in high school, you and I learned in our biology class that our vision is rods and cones, right? So sure. You yeah. see three rods and cones, right? Yep. So in 2002, which was after my high school, maybe not after your high school. Uh, right in the middle. <laughs> so in 2002, there was a biological discovery of a third photoreceptor in your eye. It started getting research and more publications after 2008, but it's called the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell. Yeah, right? I was and there's just a, about to say that. Were you? Yeah. Oh, good, because I had time. to write it down, <laughs> make sure I said it right. Uh, so this third photoreceptor and the discovery of this has just been implemented in the way that we design spaces. And we're talking the last five, 10 years. So it's yeah. relatively new. Um, and and basically, uh, you know, just like space syntax changed the way I thought about design, this photoreceptor changed the way I thought about lighting in design. And lighting is really important. Um, and what this photoreceptor does is it only reads the, uh, the blue light the wavelength in the blue light. Sure. LEDs are manufactured with the daylight blue lights, but it's because they it's a mix of colors from yellow to purple that right. render blue to your rods and cones. But it doesn't fool that third photoreceptor into thinking that it's blue light, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. This third photoreceptor is directly connected to the portion of your brain that controls your circadian rhythm. Yeah. So your entire biology, that sleep need for sleep and what sleep does and how healthy that is, is connected to this photoreceptor. Yeah. Uh, so it's so important that we're connected to natural light and so important that there's no substitute in artificial lighting for it. Yeah. Even though the color rendering may be the same, the wavelength isn't the same. Yeah. So it has a different biological effect and impact on your body. So just those are just two things that are out of evidence-based design where you come across these things and you come across researchers who are who are connected to these things that they've made their entire career studying them and developing them. And they just inform your practice. And they're so impactful to the way that we do things now um, that it, you know, it just changes the way you think. It almost begs the question of how it was done before without that knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) It it does. Sometimes it does. And I wonder, what was I thinking? Man, I've got a couple projects I don't want photographs of anymore, right? Because I I wasn't practicing this way. Yeah, exactly. But you do run across these things in your your profession, in your career that just change the way you think. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, we we learn in architecture school, be flexible, right? Mm -hmm. Well, um, speaking of flexibility... Um, we were kind of talking about the different, I guess, types of flexibility in yeah. the design of your spaces, uh, you know, types, scales, implementation processes. Um, yeah. Talk about a little bit of those things. I'm a big nerd when it comes to flexibility. This is this is a topic I've been Just studying. Just flexibility? Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe some <laughs> other things, too. Um, yeah, just flexibility. We'll stick with that. Uh, I've studied this for, I mean, more than a decade. Uh, and I had a great honor and privilege of working with my thesis advisor, Craig Zimmering, mm-hmm. 
10 years after graduation, he partnered with Emory Healthcare for a project. And the premise of this whole project was one of the guiding principles was flexibility. And so I came in as the architect for the project and he's like, well, here's your chance a decade later to practice what you preach. Yeah. Right. So he's still giving me a grade 10 years into my you still have your career. Thesis advisor I did. Yes. Now your 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 client manager. Yes. <laughs> that is exactly what was happening. Yeah. And you go, well, I remember 10 years ago, you wrote this article and you wrote this paragraph at this time and said, this is how do we implement that here? So he's bringing stuff up that, you know, we researched together That's 10 great. years earlier. Uh, sure to help again. Oh, it's, it's so much fun, right? Yeah. Um, it's a blast. Um, but it, it pushed the project forward to a place that was very successful uh, for all parties. It, in part of that research and part of the project, um, we were able to explore different types of flexibility. And it, basically, it boils down to three types of flexibility, adaptability, um, convertibility, and transformability. And adaptability is, is probably what you think about ch- construction changes in time over time. Sure. Transformability is probably something a little more rare that you don't really think about. That's uh, the U.S. Navy has the mercy ship and they have hospitals on ships. So yeah. when a natural disaster happens, they can be responsive and move to a different area and provide healthcare to provide assistance to a healthcare system and yeah. transform the system, right? So that's transformability. And then convertibility is a space that can be used for the same configuration, but can be used for multiple uses. Yeah. Uh, we see that in uh, patient rooms that are designed for ICU that are used as med surge until they need to be used for ICU. Yeah, or um, uh, outpatient clinics used for sleep lab research yes. in the evenings to yes. keep a 24-hour cycle on a 12-hour cycle space. That's right. And yeah. we have examples of convertibility that, that are all over the place as well. So yeah. those are the three types that we talk about and, and have an understanding of. And um, those three types are then have six or seven different scales that go all the way from the scale of the campus or the neighborhood mm-hmm. down to the scale of what I affectionately call the stuff in the room, yeah. um, whether that's FF&E, furniture, pictures, equipment, artwork and accessories, wayfinding and signage, those kinds of things yep. have a place in flexibility. So uh, we implement that on every project by taking this matrix where you have one axis is uh, the types, the other axis uh, is the scale. Nice. And you have an answer for every one of them. The answer may be that you're not going to use it, yeah. but the answer may be, yeah, here's how we're going to address this in this specific project. And sometimes those like uh, defining that what you're not going to do yes. is is more helpful than you might you might think why should we just fill out this section and say no because mm-hmm. we're not actually doing anything in there. Absolutely. But six months down the road when you're nearing the end of design you're like why didn't we do that? You can you've documented that you, yes. you, you discussed it, it was reviewed and it was, you know, projected, yeah. passed over. Yeah. Uh, or even in construction when you're like we should, why didn't we do this? We're like, no, we, well, we, we did review it and we determined this was why we didn't do it. So, yeah, just to say that, the, the reasons why no are sometimes just as important as the reasons why yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, my uh, my team and I have a strategy that we use uh, when we're doing uh, visioning meetings or programming meetings and when we close out and we're about to start drawing, right? We're about to enter schematic design. Yeah. We take three columns, what we know, what we think we know, and what we don't know. And the goal of that last meeting is to get everything from what we don't know and what we think we know into the what we know column. Uh, and it, sometimes it's the entire group doesn't know. We're, we're going to figure this out. It's going to be an experiment as we go forward. Yeah. Uh, but just noting that and realizing that and documenting that, hey, this is the piece that we don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to try. <laughs> That's the piece that becomes pretty critical. Yeah. Can you give me those, those three types of flexibilities again? 
Yeah, I, man, I got an infographic I can send you. That you're okay, gonna, great. Well, I'll link that in the show it. notes. Um, <laughs> you'll you guys love can it. See that. You'll love it. Yeah, adaptability, transformability, convertibility. Cool. That's, yeah. a, that's a great. I like looking at a project at those scales, and um, and you know, I think one question I have about that is how you address those with your clients in the earlier stages of a project. Do they come to you with the idea in mind of what type of flexibility they're looking for? Do they come saying, you know, we need to accomplish a couple of different things, but we're not sure how. Um, is this a, a tool that you work on with them, you know, side by side, or is it a something that you bring to them later or something they come to you with kind of already in mind? You know, um, that's a great question. I can't think of a client in the past 10 years that has not said the word flexibility in one of the first couple meetings. They, mm-hmm. it's, it's always a buzzword, yeah. uh, but then boiling down what they're, what they really want and what they try to get to, uh, is really, uh, is really the, the part where we have a better understanding of what they mean when they say flexibility. Because yeah. flexibility is a very broad term. Yep. It means a lot of things, um, to a lot of people in a lot of ways. So it, it boiling that down to figure out what are we trying to solve? What is the essence of the question? What is some root cause analysis? Why did you say that word? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that words mean things. I've heard that too. <laughs> yeah. And so we just, and not all the time do they mean the same thing to the same people. So I have also heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we just want to be sure that we're answering the question they're asking and addressing the question they're asking and, you know, trying to stick with that solution. So even if they don't, ask that question, we usually ask it yeah. among the list of, you know, 20 other questions in programming and envisioning, you know, what, what it's a, when we set guiding principles for projects, that's usually some of the things that we do. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I just keep lobbing you softballs for you to hit or you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not participating in this. It's more like I'm not even participating. I'm just here. Can you tell me about this? Tell me about this. But um, we, we talked some and you were like super excited to, to get to this point about the natural curiosity oh, man. Um, of, of this process. And so I just kind of lets you loose on that idea. And you can explain a little bit what you're talking about when you, when you say that. Yeah, it's such a, a that's, I love this topic uh, because one, I mean, just like you, architecture is a calling. There's, I don't think there's anything else in the world that I could be doing, right? I love it so much. Um, I think this is what this is what I'm supposed to do, yeah. right? You just, I, I think every architect should feel like that. If you don't, it, find something else, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's a lot of other options out There's there. There's plenty of other options you out there. haven't heard. That's right. That's right. And with an architecture degree, you can do just about all of them, yeah, right? So, except to be an aerospace engineer. Yes, you get, they won't let you be an engineer with an architecture <laughs> There's degree. There's only one solution. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. So it, natural curiosity. Um I ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. and, and there's no question that I think is a dumb question. There's no question that shouldn't be asked. I think if I even have started practicing at the end of conversations or at the end of whether it's a download with a teammate or if it's an end of a client meeting, what's the question I'm not asking you? Yeah. Right. What, what should I be asking you that I'm not? What are you surprised I haven't asked about? Sure. Those are first that takes people a, a minute to think about that. Um, but I think we don't ask enough questions from each other, from the profession, from our clients, our colleagues. Uh, we just we run with what we think we know, yeah. um, rather than just slowing down and asking the question. Um, uh, and I, I think approaching our work and man, approaching life with some natural curiosity about how things work. Why is that that way? Yeah. 
Um, That's an advice that I give to interns and sort of the, the entry level zero to three professionals who are maybe working in their first job. I tell them, I know that you don't know what to do. <laughs> so don't act like you do know what to do because otherwise you're going to go Google the answer and hope you get the right one. And you're going to spend half the day doing that. I, mm-hmm. I know that you don't know. So I'd like for you to just tell me and ask. And I'm happy to tell you. Absolutely. Uh, and, and everyone around you is happy to do that. And everyone along the whole line of the project would love mm-hmm. for you to just ask the question, get the information. We all work together better and quicker. Mm-hmm. So just to put a point there, and if I've, you don't know, ask. It's ask. fine and ask. I've never met an architect that didn't want to, an architect that didn't want to be a teacher at yeah. some point. We all want to be teachers in our, in even if every day at our office, we want to be teachers. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm, I've worked with a lot of folks that I can't think of an architect that didn't want to. Even if they weren't passionate about like teaching, they mm-hmm. want their teams to be better, and so they'd rather answer the question so <laughs> that everyone is better and more efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, the other the other point to that I that I think is important to make is that in architecture you gain years of experience, but sometimes. 20 years of experience can actually be one year of experience 19 times yeah. and not actually a growth of 20 years of experience. Yeah, the way absolutely. we practice evolves and changes and moves just, just like the economy, just like the world. And we have to keep up. And sometimes we actually, I'm one of those that believes we should be leading <laughs> the change, not, not trying to keep up with what is, what are other industries doing? How can we move faster? No, we, it's okay for us to be innovative and even disruptive at times to be in, in the lead of a change. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that just being curious about what comes next and how can I get there and how can I help and what questions should I be asking? Yeah, I it's interesting that's... to think about an industry that takes two to three years to pull off each <laughs> incremental improvement, you know, finishing a project from design through construction mm-hmm. to be cutting edge or leading. <laughs> um, it, it's a challenge, but I think that's it's a, it's a nice charge that you're putting out there to, Find yeah. ways to not just be who is the the, the debutante like royal person who's like I, let me find my people and see where they're going so I can lead them. It's like no, that's not really how like leadership works. It's a mm. bit more of a come follow me. Let's go work mm-hmm. there and get there together. Oh, I I agree, and I think that natural curiosity just plays a role in that. Be curious about what you're doing and and how it's working, and ask tons of questions. Yeah. So. People who are here in this conversation who are interested, maybe this is the first time they've heard about evidence-based design yeah. or, or EBD um, or EDAC or any of it, um, or whatever sort of amalgamation of, of consonants and vowels you can come up with, um, what is maybe the best first step into exploring evidence-based design for themselves? Yeah, so there's a ton of great resources out there. Um, Healthcare Design Magazine is one of those that's it's a it's an industry publication. It's got great articles, flashy pictures. I mean, it's one of the more eye-catching, you know, consumed by the masses. That's the one that's going to draw the most attention yeah. uh, first, I think. And if you're, you know, a little nerdy like me, there's the Herd Journal, right? That's okay. got a ton of stuff in there that can do that. EDAC has its own website as well, right? There's the study guides, all that material there. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's also um, evidence-based design is its whole, it's an entire industry. Yeah. Uh, so the, just the Center for Health Design website center. is, mm-hmm. um, I think, on board and a big part of the, Absolutely. Ev- the EDAC and evidence-based community. And there are a lot mm-hmm. of like graphic guides there mm-hmm. that 
Um, I've even sent to some of my clients who have, they're not in the stage of a project yet, but they're like trying to explore right. an idea. And rather than maybe going through our own process of coming up with a detail or, or a drawing or whatever, there's some great resources of this is an ICU room and, and a lot of the typical things that are in it. Here's a med surge room or here's an outpatient clinic or mm-hmm. a behavior health room. All those resources are on that website that you can just sort of yeah. click and link um, and you know, be the resource for your client, even if you're not generating the, sure. the research, but helping them connect with where they can find that that's, information. That's right. That the only, you know, the only time I would pump the brakes on that is evidence-based design by definition is a process. Mm. So there's not evidence-based design solutions and you check the boxes. Yeah. It is a by definition, it is a process. Yeah. And you have to work the process. When I should clarify it, on the same page there comes like a a spreadsheet you can download with yeah. like 19 tabs <laughs> that walk you through That's right. the process of not only identifying the existing research, but helping to contribute to adding more That's to right. it. So definitely process. Yes. Definitely not just solutions to cherry mm. pick, but um, a good starting point for for initial yeah. references. About showing you solutions that have come from others working the same process. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I agree. Center for Health Design is a great job uh, putting their information out there and, and publishing it, which is very helpful. Yeah. Well, taking a cue from what you just said a few moments ago, um, are there any questions I haven't asked you about <laughs> evidence-based design um, that you would like to share? About evidence-based design? Yeah, I don't think, think I haven't so. asked you about. I, I think we've covered a lot here today. I've talked fast. That's great. I'll, I'll have to slow down. You guys can slow down this, the uh, playback speed um, and, and catch it a second time around. Um, I do want to share just a bit of a uh, news roundup on healthcare design around the country. Uh, HDR opened a new office in Kansas City uh, with the, the new staff that they're developing there. The VA uh, has proposed $4.1 billion for construction, $3 billion of that for some about uh, 10 medical facilities across Puerto Rico, Oregon, uh, Washington, Texas, and California. So that's some major development. Mm-hmm. Um, Mount Carmel Health System in Central Ohio is part of Trinity Health is breaking ground on a $250 million project um, encompassing a broad range of inpatient and outpatient imaging, surgery, etc. And uh, Baycare Health from Florida, where we're both from originally, is um, opening some new, a new bed tower and MOB in Florida, um, 60 beds, operating rooms, etc. So um, lots of stuff going around in the community, and that was only, I'm sure, a snippet. So um, lots of exciting stuff. If you would like to hear more like this or today's conversation with Josh on evidence-based design, you can uh, join the Healthcare Design Network uh, and get the weekly newsletter, sort of weekly newsletter is what I call it, um, starting in, in April. <laughs> um, look, I've got stuff going on, so I can't always crank it out, but I do my best. Um, you can go to healthcaredesignnetwork.com and, uh, and sign up there. Um, Josh, thanks for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. And, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. If um, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about this or in, mm-hmm. in other things in general, what's the best way for them to contact you? There's a couple ways. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me and message me on there. Uh, you can shoot me an email at jdc at smp-studio.com. That's smp-studio.com. It's the Genga in Partners. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. If yeah, click check it. our check our website out too. Um, uh, you can get to me through that way as well. Cool. Well, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you sharing with us, and um, 
look forward to seeing you out there. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. <laughs>